Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're bringing you a classic episode of Invention. We'll uh, we'll we'll push aside the uh, the cordoning off of uh, bubble tape, step through the line, and and investigate the world of chewing gum. That's right. Where does it come from? Uh, uh, what did we chew before we had gum? Uh, how does gum, uh, you know, influence our lives? Those are some of the questions we're going to explore in this classic episode of Invention, which originally published July eighth, twenty nineteen. Let's dive right in. Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Robert, I've got a question for you about childhood. Hit me. Did your elementary school have draconian anti-gum policies? Um, there, was definitely, there were definitely anti-gum policies, and I, and I agree with them. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the time, I don't think I was a big gum chewer at the time, so they didn't really impact me all that much. But... No. Um, uh, but but ultimately, like I I don't like stepping in gum. Uh, I don't like uh, encountering gum stuck to the bottom of desks or inside desks. So uh, I never really had a problem with it. I think uh, maybe my confusion. I mean, I wasn't a huge gum chewer as a child, but I do remember thinking about the gum rule. This just doesn't make sense. It's not fair. It was one of my first real, uh, you know, uh, th- thought processes of rebelling against authority and the rules imposed by the man. Mm-hmm. Because other rules were like, you know, don't hit people, don't steal from people. Like they all caused harm to someone. And I was thinking, what harm does it do when someone chews gum? Now I understand the adult perspective. It's, I think, primarily because it's, like, gross and because the gum ends up somewhere it shouldn't. Right. The gum ends up somewhere it shouldn't be. Uh, there's also just, especially if it's bubble gum. I don't know. I, I still am kind of anti-bubble gum. Mm-hmm. Like, there's not – okay, it can be fun to blow a bubble, I guess, but it's just kind of weird. I don't know. It, and I, I've, I've taught before, and I don't specifically remember encountering gum chewers. Maybe I did, but – I think I, if, if I didn't find it annoying, I feel like I would find it annoying. You know what I'm saying? It, it, like just looking out there and there, there's somebody chewing and then it's probably if, – if you've ever experienced any level of misophonia, mm-hmm. like gum chewing can definitely set off misof- misophonia, especially if it's like gum smacking, you know, where it's like open mouth chewing of the gum. I am less annoyed by uh, memories of students chewing gum, which I don't really have. I do remember students in my classes eating – just eating lunch and stuff, mm-hmm. which I, I never knew if I should make a big deal about that or not. Uh, It's one of those things that in retrospect, I probably should have forbidden but didn't. Yeah. On the other hand, I do – I chew a lot of gum today. Like if I'm in the car, I will probably – even if I don't really need it, I'll generally grab a piece of sugar-free gum and uh, and chew it a bit. And it's – sometimes it's not even like a a breath-freshening exercise. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like this morning, I put one in my mouth on the way into work and I had like just brush my teeth. So there was no like real like freshness issue at hand. It was just – I just wanted the uh, sensation of chewing the gum. It's a good way of getting the goat blood off of your teeth. <laughs> now, that being said, it is – I think it's super handy to be able to turn to gum if, you know, you need a little something to freshen your breath up after you've uh, just had a meal out and you don't have access to you know, toothpaste and toothbrush. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be – it can also be be great while working, if, you know, while you're studying, writing, et cetera. And then I've also – I've heard of, of other people like growing to depend on it in certain tasks. Like here's one I've never quite understood, but I have heard – that some professional wrestlers not only chew gum while wrestling, Ugh. but depend on it. Like if they are not chewing the gum, it like throws off their 
their uh, their rhythm or something. Choking hazard, right? Well, one would think, right? I mean, I, I as as a, as a father, like I definitely, if my son were running around chewing gum, I would probably say, give him the whole like you're going to choke on that if you if you run, but. Uh, yeah, there's this whole thing with with professional wrestlers, professional athletes. Uh, I mean, it's obviously Big League Chew uh, <laughs> was named for uh, uh, you know for big for Major League Baseball players uh, who I guess were uh, you know generally chewing tobacco uh, in the old days. But I but still chew gum. You'll still see professional athletes chewing gum during their events. I, I think one thing that's funny about Big League Chew is that it's the most unnecessarily macho of candies. And yet if you look back in history, there is often a very gendered component to people's judgment of gum-chewing behaviors mm-hmm. in which gum-chewing is uh, is in many points in societies in history associated with women and especially young women and looked on judgmentally. Huh. Uh, so I've got a little ditty from the British Medical Journal in 1897. You want to hear some gum hate? Yeah, let's hear it. Okay. The question has been raised whether there is any reason for supposing that the practice of gum chewing so prevalent in the United States is on the increase in this country. We have made some inquiries and have ascertained that many young women, students, actresses and others appear to have acquired this disgusting habit and are inveterate chewers. We have examined specimens of chewing gum obtained from various fashionable sweet shops in London and find that as a rule, it consists of rubber flavored with aniseed or peppermint or some other aromatic substance. Now, I catch more than a hint of misogyny and all of that, especially singling out um, students and actresses. Actresses, so it's yeah. like, like like women in society, that, independent young women, yeah, maybe. yeah, that are that have some level of independence are the ones that are being singled out as being disgusting gum chewers. Uh-huh. And then the gum itself, like you're talking about, like peppermint flavored, uh, you know, rubber. I mean, what's? I mean, it sounds pleasant. Doesn't sound that disgusting, no. but this disgusting habit. I've got a response to this article from the British Medical Journal. This response is in the North American Practitioner the next year, 1898. Uh, Just a couple of selections from it. Our English contemporaries are taking our people to task, as well they may for the vile, as they term it, the American habit of gum chewing. We submit no defense to the charge and are only consoled by the fact that the habit is less disgusting than that of tobacco chewing. (laughs) Our confrères have our profound sympathy in their efforts to promote reform. At the same time, we prefer to see jaw jumpers consigned to the minor bad rather than the bad irremediable. We regret that this fad is classed as an American industry. Nevertheless, the fact is too patent for denial and there is no accounting for taste. (laughs) Jaw jumpers. Never heard that before, but I think I get what they're saying. Because did you know the kid when you were in elementary school who didn't just chew gum but did the like exaggerated huge up and down movement of the jaw, the ah, ah, ah. <laughs> I guess I vaguely remember, I, you know, saying, but I, I was, sometimes I would think that that's part of just having too much gum in your mouth mm-hmm. or deciding to refreshen a, um, uh, you know, a, a completely drained piece of gum with a second piece of gum, uh-huh. which, you know, might have seemed like a good idea when you're a kid. One more follow-up to the BMJ article. Uh, I was reading about this in a book by Carrie Seagrave called Chewing Gum in America, 1850 to 1920. 
Uh, this book's from 2015. So it notes that this original British Medical Journal article was reprinted in the Daily Mail shortly after appearing in the BMJ. And the printing actually prompted an editorial response that included an interview with this guy named Hubert Beaumont, who was managing director of a retail shop called Fuller's, which sold chewing gum. And Beaumont was defensive. He insisted that the British Medical Journal was wrong, that chewing gum was not made out of rubber, but out of sap that came from a tree that grew in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Quote, it is a purely vegetable substance and perfectly harmless. And he also defended gum chewing uh, from the charge that it was disgusting, basically saying, hey, you know, people have been chewing stuff for a long time. Exactly. So that's what we're going to look at for the rest of today's episode, the, the history and invention of various forms of chewing gum. Uh, look at the history of this disgusting habit, <laughs> uh, the invention of several different versions of gum across the years, and what our gum says about us. I do want to say that another time when I usually have to chew gum or I really prefer to chew gum is if I am, uh, you know, flying or driving up into the mountains, mm-hmm. uh, that sort of thing, uh, where you're going to encounter – Well, I mean, where you're encountering pressure changes. Oh, I see. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great to, to – you know, can help relieve uh, leave pressure uh, in, in, the, in the ears, you know, uh, due in large part because chewing uh, it, and certainly feel your face the next time you're chewing. I mean, yeah. it is a uh, it involves so many different muscles of the the head and face. Like it's a it's it's a it's a major muscular activity. That's a really good point about the pressure change. I did not go there. I I thought you were going to go to anxiety. I know you uh-huh. you can get a little anxious on an airplane. Oh no! I, well, there are other things I prefer uh, to, to gum for that. But uh, <laughs> but I don't know. There, there are those who speak. Well, maybe we'll get into this a little later. That speak to the anxiety, um, uh, the, the use of gum to at least mm-hmm. mildly treat anxiety. Well, I mean, I think about the behaviors of some animals where a symptom of anxiety or anxiety-like conditions in some animals can manifest as chewing behaviors. Oh, yeah. Well, let's let's talk about about chewing uh, itself because ultimately that's the the main activity uh, at play here. Mm-hmm. So chewing is good. Chewing is necessary. It's okay. No, it's it's great. It's, it's great. wonderful. For the members of the animal kingdom that engage in chewing, which of course includes us, it allows us to take the first steps toward digestion. Uh-huh. So you're breaking your food down into smaller pieces and also increasing the overall surface area of the food. And this will speed up the effectiveness of digestion. Uh, and then chewing also uh, releases flavors, uh, you know, often very uh, pleasurable flavors. And, uh, and this is all part of the sensory perception of the material that we're testing out and potentially eating. Yeah. And that's easy to forget. Like, why do we taste things? We taste things to figure out, to know what they are. You know, this mix of taste and smell that's happening inside your skull uh, as you mash the, the leaf or the stem or maybe a bug or a, a piece of flesh, as you chew it up, as you masticate it, um, you're, you're sensing it. You're getting a, a sense of what this is. And, and ultimately, this is supposed to play into the decision whether or not to form it into a, a bolus with your, your tongue in the back of your throat and send it down to the next step. Very appetizing to think about while you're actually eating. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I hope everybody's eating while they <laughs> – or maybe you're at least chewing gum. Uh, but there's also, in addition to just the pure mashing with the teeth, there's a little bit of sort of chemical treatment of the food as you're, you're chewing it up too, right? Oh, yeah. The act of chewing produces saliva, which plays a key role in this first phase of digestion. And again, the ultimate preparation of the bolus that will pass uh, on to the realms below. Uh-huh. And so, you know, for these reasons, chewing is especially important to herbivores and omnivores. Right. So if you want to, like, mash up tough 
fibrous plant material with your teeth so you can get more nutrients out of it. Mm-hmm. You notice uh, there are some animals that don't chew at all. and They tend I, to be carnivores. Yeah, and I, th- I think about like uh, snakes. So I mm-hmm. don't know if there, there may be some cases of snakes doing something like chewing. But generally, you know, they're going to be swallowing their prey mostly whole. Right. Yeah, another a big example, of course, the sperm whale, you know, which mm-hmm. one just inhale. A lot of fish also, you know, fish also do this as well. Yeah. It's an inhalation of the entire organism. The ending of Anaconda wouldn't be quite the same <laughs> if John Voight had been chewed up before yeah. being swallowed. Exactly. There is cinematic payoff to that for sure. Now, uh, there have been those who put, uh, you know, excessive uh, uh, emphasis on chewing. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, I have to mention the work of Horace Fletcher. Oh, who's he? Oh, well, he lived 1849 through 1919, and he was known as the Great Masticator. <laughs> Uh, for and he was known as the, the, by this moniker because of his teachings of a uh, fletcherizing. Fletcherizing. So basically, his idea was that not only did you need to chew your food because we've all heard that, right? You know, we've, we've heard somebody say that to a child. Make chew sure you it chew twenty your, times. Yeah, chew chew your food. Chew your food. Don't just uh, you know swallow it. But he was he he would argue that you need to chew your food to the point of liquefaction Ugh. in order to properly digest it and just <laughs> count your chews, etc. <laughs> And uh, he had some nice <laughs> slogans for this. Like this was his big issue. And one of them was, nature will castigate those who don't masticate. <laughs> um, Wait, so this is, this is for Smoothie King. Is well, it, before you had blenders, this guy's doing an organic smoothie revolution. Yeah, he would have loved a Vitamix, uh, you know. Uh, but but he was also, you know, arguing that that uh, chewing, you know, it's releasing the saliva, and you need a certain amount of saliva to be produced. So he was all, all part of it had to do with this with the idea of like all the things that chewing is actually doing. And uh-huh. some of these things, you know, saliva is important. Uh-huh. Is it so important that you need to chew your uh, drinks like that? Because that was something he argued. Like if you're 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 having a you're drinking something. You need to chew your drink as well, hmm. just to make sure the saliva is being produced. Okay, uh, but a lot of a lot of people were you know were uh, sucked in by this uh, this line of thinking, including Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. Now that's not a surprise. Yeah, he was an adherent, though Kellogg eventually uh, abandoned Fletcherizing because he realized that, that or he decided that fiber was more important and that fletcherizing uh, might get in the way of, uh, of taking in that necessary fiber. Well, stopped clock rule. I mean, uh, John Harvey Kellogg was mostly a crank, but fiber is very important. Yeah, it's yeah. important to have a lot in your diet. But also, wasn't John Harvey Kellogg an advocate of, like, boring foods? D- uh, didn't he suggest, like, you need to eat foods that aren't going to, like, excite the libido and stuff? He had a lot of ideas, <laughs> some, <laughs> some of which uh, – some of them were definitely, um, you know, quackery, like Fletcherizing. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, he also got into uh, abstinence being an essential part of, uh, mm. of his, uh, his, his, his plan for a better life. Uh, but then, you know, also we got cereal, uh, some cereals out of the mix. So yeah, cornflakes, right? Out. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, chewing is important but not Fletcherizing level <laughs> of important. As we said already, uh, mastication entails a whole host of facial mer- muscles, so a certain amount of you know energy goes into the act. And if you just look around at our fellow humans, yes, you'll see a lot of gum chewing, but you'll also probably notice a lot of other things wind up being chewed by humans. Uh, things like tobacco, for sure, but also various herbal chews, pencils, pens, toothpicks. Oh, don't chew toothpicks, folks. Uh, I'm not saying do it. I'm just saying you see it happen. No, I know. We're not recommending <laughs> any of these, but especially don't. Don't chew toothpicks. 
Um, you'll see people chewing uh, uh, pacifiers. Uh, sometimes adults will chew pacifiers that light up. Uh, and then also uh, oh, night Never gun. heard of that. You never heard that? Well, you, you see some people, um, like it's like a raver sort oh, of thing. I don't know okay, if it's still yeah. done, but used to, one would see it. And then uh, then I, I myself, I use a night guard at night. And sometimes mm-hmm. I think of that as chewing. Like basically I'm putting a chew toy in my mouth and chewing it all night. Uh, but I, I do have to drive home that this is actually uh, bruxism, which is uh, excessive teeth grinding or jaw clenching, and it's unrelated to eating. Uh, likewise, there are various chewing disorders in animals as well that shouldn't necessarily be confused for examples of normal eating or anything resembling recreational chewing. Hmm. And I was wondering about this, though. So, so yeah, if, if we see humans chewing things, in many cases, seemingly purely for the act of chewing, like you're chewing on the end of that pen. Why? You're not gaining any nutrients from that pen. You just must you know, want something to chew. Uh, and, I, and I wonder— Ugh. Oh, sorry. I just, I, <laughs> no, I thought about pe- ice chewing. Oh, ice chewing. Ice chewing freaks me out. Oh, really? Huh. I know m- millions of you out there probably do it, but it just— Please don't do it around me. It gives me the creeps. Well, there's, there's a, but it, my point is there's a lot of stuff we chew and why. And uh, so I was wondering about this and I wonder if to a certain extent this is because uh, this is like stemming back uh, to a time in our prehistory in which we were always gathering edible materials. You know, we were hunter-gatherers, and as we gathered, perhaps we were eating a little bit as we went. We were Mm -hmm. tasting, chewing things to see what they were, Mm -hmm. or, you know, certainly if we recognized what they were and knew that they had, say, like a mild stimulant to them, perhaps we needed to to chew on that to keep going, but... Well, probably also a lot of high-fiber potential foods. Yeah, yeah, you kind of, you know, you would need to be chewing all the time, right? Uh, I, I was also – I recently learned on a mushroom and herb foraging uh, tour uh, via a licensed herbalist that an experienced forger can chew, taste, and spit a variety of substances. So not necessarily chewing uh, – you know, not chewing to eat, but chewing to sort of taste and help identify a particular substance, even a mushroom. Hmm. Um, uh, because if you're – yeah, if something like if you if you chew it and spit it, you know, you can get a sense of it. Is it a bitter or is it putrid, whatever the the taste happens to be, and that would aid an experienced uh, individual in identifying that substance. Hmm. Well, so I've got a question. Do bears chew gum? <laughs> I mean, what, are, there, are there examples of gum-style recreational chewing in the animal world outside of humans? Well, um, I looked around for examples of recreational chewing in animals, and there wasn't a lot to report. Most of it seems to be in the aid of food selection and consumption or due to some manner of malady or the effects of being kept in an enclosure. Mm -hmm. I I thought to my own cat, and occasionally, you know, my cat will do this thing where she she takes the food in her mouth, chew it, lets it drop out, and then maybe she'll eat it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think that's ultimately part of – you know, her tasting the substance and then deciding whether to eat it. Mm-hmm. Now, I do think that there there seem to be some behaviors in dogs and perhaps other carnivores that seem to me to be non-feeding versions of chewing where they'll chew on a, you know, bone or a stick or something. And, yeah. Um, and I wonder if that has to do with like dental health or something about the teeth. Well, you do. There is uh, there is an element of dental health in some animals. Probably the the best example being that of uh, you know to a certain extent uh, uh, you know birds and dogs uh, chewing on different items. Uh, obviously, like a, a for a 
a, like a cat, and you often see feathers brought up as an example of something they would kind of chew on roughly, you know, as a, as a way of you know, helping to keep their teeth clean. Mm-hmm. Dogs are going to chew on bones, obviously. Um, but uh, then hamsters, for example, uh, it's an animal that needs to chew in order to keep its ever-growing teeth healthy. It's like sharpening your knives. Yeah, yeah. I guess if your knives kept growing. <laughs> yeah, if your knives kept growing out of your skull. Exactly. Uh, but dogs, though, uh, you, you encourage me to, to look into this a little bit more because I'm not a dog owner, but you're a dog owner. Does mm-hmm. your dog like to chew on things in the house? Yes. He's not as big a chewer as some dogs are. Uh, and I'd make a strong distinction, I guess, between things that are in some way kind of a food or food analogy, like mm-hmm. something that is, is flavored or something, uh, you know, right. rawhide or something like that yeah. versus just chewing on like chew toys, which which – Charlie doesn't do very much, but some dogs do a lot of. Yeah, I was reading a little bit about this. So on one level, like food chew toys that are made out of some sort of edible material, Mm -hmm. like they'll break those down. Yeah. Like I I was surprised at that. That's basically eating. Yeah, I was surprised as a non-dog owner. Like one day I brought uh, this like – edible chew toy over to a friend's house. And I was like, oh, this will be great. This, the dog will love this for weeks and weeks. Uh-huh. And the dog proceeded to just just break it into pieces and just uh-huh. eat the whole thing. And I was, uh, I was impressed. Um, a big, nasty, bloody, wet muzzle when it's done. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but um, but but, uh, but then there's this whole issue, of course, che- dogs chewing things they're not supposed to chew, especially shoes. Oh, yeah. And I found um, I found an article in Live Science uh, where they were talking to uh, Colin Tennant, a chairman of the UK Canine and Feline Behavior Association. And uh, uh, they pointed out that, okay, so yes, dogs chew things, uh, but a lot of times they're chewing things in order to sense them. And it comes down to, not only the not really the taste necessary, but the smell potential of a dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said that when a when a dog chews on something, it's like a quote a human opening a door and looking into a room. Mm-hmm. So we have to remember that in, in all these other animals, they're living in their own different sensory worlds with different levels of sensory input, and a dog lives in a, a you know a, a high level olfactory universe, mm-hmm. and so chewing on something and releasing the smells of that thing and the tastes of that thing, um, like they're interacting with it in a way that we can scarcely really imagine. Yeah. And uh, Tennant says that, you know, a lot of the chewing, such as the chewing of shoes, is also done out of anxiety. So ultimately a dog is a pack animal and it needs the pack for security. And you humans that, uh, you know, that live with the dog, well, you are its pack. And so they might chew on a shoe in order to engage with the smell of their humans, which is comforting. But then the extra level of uh, complication there is that a lot of times our shoes are made out of leather, which <laughs> leans into their natural inclination to chew on meat, bones, etc. Mm-hmm. But but I think that's interesting. I, I really never really had thought about that before. Like in the same way that if we were away from our loved ones, we might pull up a picture and stare longingly at them uh-huh. or listen to them on the phone, listen to a recording perhaps because we're, we're an audiovisual leaning species. Mm-hmm. But what does an olfactory species do? Uh, you know, they may chew on – they're going to chew on a remnant and, uh, <laughs> and, and engage with the smell. Uh, you know, it's – we can – it's difficult to imagine how, how humans would operate if smell was our prime – was one of our, you know, more forward uh, sensory perceptions. It's something I think about a lot. I mean, when you walk a dog, it's kind of it, – it's hard not to notice that the dog is just by sniffing the world opening many sort of 
cases. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like you know you're a detective and you're out like opening a case constantly by investigating something. That I, I don't know if those cases ever get closed or <laughs> how much information is being provided. But clearly, th- there's just all kinds of. Uh, streams of smell-based information that the dog is benefiting from just on a you know, walk down the sidewalk that you're not picking up on at all. On the other hand, maybe you can enjoy spearmint gum in a way that a dog can't. So maybe we should take a break. Yeah, let's take a break. And when we come back, we will discuss some of the earliest known examples of something like chewing gum. All right, we're back. So the short answer is that, yes, even in ages past, deprived of big league chew and similar (laughs) items, um, you still had people who were chewing gum, uh, but they were chewing natural gums and latex and sometimes harder materials as well. And they did it for reasons that, you know, I think we can in many cases say were recreational, Mm -hmm. though – it's, as is kind of the case in our recent Stuff to Blow Your Mind episodes on um, – that dealt with uh, with uh, psychedelics and certain drugs, the, the term recreational is difficult in uh, contemplating like why humans consume things mm. or engage in things. It can be used to say like this is something that you're doing purely – you know, for no good reason. Whereas when you really analyze things that we classify as recreation, be it something we drink, something we eat, or something we do, like a social mm-hmm. uh, engagement, there's often more to it. It's often more important than that. A recreational is often used to mean trivial. Yes. And it doesn't necessarily mean that. Right. As uh, as uh, the psychedelic enthusiast Bob Jesse, I think, would say, what's wrong with recreating myself? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, but then on top of that, we're going to see some examples of uh, chewing gum and gum-like uh, materials for hygienic reasons, um, uh, even um, even health reasons. Medicinal reasons. Medicinal yeah. reasons, yeah. And we see this across many different cultures. Yeah. So uh, I, w- I want to talk for a bit about Otzi, the so-called Iceman. You know oh, Otzi? Yeah, of course. Uh, Otzi is great. Otzi is a wonderful indi- individual to study uh, because you know he, he preserves uh, some of the activities that uh, that ancient humans engaged in that we still engage in today, such as uh, uh, tattoos, for instance. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so, so Otzi, if you're not familiar, is a Stone Age mummy from the late 4th century – not 4th century, sorry, the late 4th millennium BCE, uh, discovered in the early 1990s, frozen with his head and part of his body sticking out of a glacier in the Italian Alps, like way up in the <laughs> Italian Alps. And Osi is a fascinating subject in so many ways, as you allude to. Uh, we could re- return to him in a number of ways in either one of our podcasts. But included among the many fascinating questions about him are what was he doing so high up in the mountains, especially since CAT scans of the mummy revealed that uh, he's got an arrowhead lodged in his shoulder. Oh, wow. And he had other injuries that occurred right before death, showing that he almost certainly died by homicide. And so, like, what you know, this, like, what, 6,000-year-old murder mystery or 5,000-year-old murder mystery? That, that's pretty cool. Yeah. But one of the other things about Otzi that's really interesting is his toolkit. So, of course, he is a, uh, a Stone Age guy up in the mountains and he's got Stone Age tools with him and they're very well preserved. So this includes an axe that he carried with him that had an awesome copper blade. And the copper blade has been traced back to its origins in southern Tuscany, which of course is hundreds of miles from where Otzi lived. And this copper blade was secured to the haft of the axe by a couple of means. So it was wrapped with leather straps 
Uh, but it was also secured there by a type of Stone Age glue made of tar that was created from the bark of the birch tree. And I want to focus on this birch bark tar for a second because we could probably do an episode of this show on Stone Age adhesives, ancient glues. I mean, isn't glue a fascinating invention in its own right? It comes thousands of years after the biface or knife, mm-hmm. but it's sort of like it's the it's the inverse knife. Yeah, how do we put uh, things back together or how do we assemble things as opposed to disassemble them? Yeah. Uh, so birch bark tar is this black, sticky, plastic substance that's made from the destructive distillation of bark from the birch tree. And practically what this means is that your Stone Age human would create this stuff through a delicate proto-industrial process by which they would heat birch bark over a temperature-controlled fire inside an airtight container or at least a uh, low-oxygen environment. And the tar produced by this process functions as a thermal plastic, meaning it's solid at room temperature, but the more you heat it up, the softer and more pliable it gets. So you can, you know, you heat it up enough and it can basically become kind of like a viscous liquid that you can apply like a glue. Now, obviously, having this tar-based adhesive would be useful in the ancient world. Think of all the stuff you can do with glue. Sure, you can glue shards of broken pottery back together. But in the case of uh, Stone Age action heroes like Otzi, mm-hmm. you can use this birch bark tar to glue fletching onto arrow shafts. And you can also use it in conjunction with the straps I mentioned to haft your copper axe head and hold it in place while you do your whacking on whatever you do your whacking to. Uh, Another use would be for waterproofing things. Yeah, as as a sealant, exactly. So the ancient uses of birch bark tar and and tree bark tars in general are are extensive. But one of the most interesting was a use we have surprisingly clear evidence of. So I was reading about it in a paper uh, by Elizabeth M. Aveling and Carl Heron in the journal Antiquity in 1999 called Chewing Tar in the Early Holocene, an Archaeological and Ethnographic Evaluation. So from all throughout sites in northern Europe, including Scandinavia, southern Germany, and Switzerland, archaeologists have recovered lumps of what appears to be ancient tar with human tooth impressions in them. Ah. And they date from the Mesolithic and Neolithic periods. So the, were they attached to the underside of Neolithic desks? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you wonder about that, right? Like uh, if they'd had more infrastructure then, would it be all over the place? Like imagine too in Neolithic times it was possible to step on somebody's chewing material, mm-hmm. uh, step on somebody's chewing gum and be like, oh, who put yeah. this here? yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that's assuming we know that this was gum, but I'm going to make the case it pr- very likely was. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, so they date from the Mesolithic and Neolithic periods. That's the middle to late Stone Age, going back uh, about as far as roughly 9,000 years ago. And they're all described as these amorphous masses, black or brown in color, that have indentations left by human teeth. So why were human teeth biting down on these lumps of ancient tar? We think very likely it was for some form of chewing gum. And the authors suggest this as well. Quote, although the primary function of teeth is to bite, chew, crunch, and grind food, chewing plant or animal products serves a number of alternative roles, such as cleaning teeth and gums, Mm -hmm. freshening breath, quenching thirst, alleviating dental ailments and sore throats, and as a means of delivering medicinal and psychoactive agents to the body. Now, 
they talk about maybe there are a couple of uh, counter explanations for why you might find tooth marks on old bits of tar. And these these tooth marks might have reflected some kind of functional or practical use instead of showing that the, the tar was chewing gum. For example, it might have been related to their use as an adhesive. Since birch bark tar is thermoplastic, maybe chewing softened the tar so that you could apply it as an adhesive or sealant. It's sort of mm. like the hot glue gun is your mouth. <laughs> you know, you put the glue stick in, you chew it up, you heat it with your mouth, then you spit it out. But the authors don't seem convinced by this because, quote, experiments have suggested that a coating of saliva actually reduces the capacity of the tar to adhere. Another possible explanation they mention is that, quote, amorphous aggregates formed a stock of tar to be reheated from time to time to facilitate the removal of smaller pieces for use. Once sufficiently softened, it would then be easy to bite a piece off. So, right, so like your ammunition of tar to use out in the field is this big piece and then you could heat it up a little bit and bite a piece off to remove it from, mm. from your bandolier of tar basically. Uh, so that might be a possibility. But there seems to be pretty good evidence that this was just chewing gum. Uh, and there, there's some evidence that chewing tar and tree resin like this has been passed down through generations in northern Europe as a treatment for sore throats and dental complaints even into the 20th century. Like the authors cite ethnographic studies of tar and resin chewing behavior conducted by Vilkuna in 1964 in the Lapp area of northern Sweden. And I want to read a quote here. Quote, Vilkuna also notes an 1817 account written by Gotland of a church service in Finland at which half of the congregation, all women, were chewing resin to keep themselves awake. <laughs> so if you've got a really boring minister who's putting everybody to sleep, you chew resin so that you don't fall asleep and, and get in trouble. Gotland noted that people chewed to pass the time, to keep teeth white, to prevent the invasion of scurvy into the gums and to relieve stomach pains and heartburn. The most enthusiastic chewers were adolescents and old women. The preparation of chews required practice, so older women often pre-chewed the resin for children. Cool. <laughs> well, you know, I, I have chewed things for my son before. Really? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's not that uncommon. It makes sense. Really? Like chewed with your mouth? Well, I'm not judging. I mean, Well, like, okay, well... Like if you need – say, for instance, uh, my, my son's going through the phase right now where his teeth uh, – he's changing out his teeth. He's losing the baby teeth. The right. grown-up teeth are coming in. Uh -huh. And there have been a couple of times where he hasn't been able to like bite into an apple. And if the apple is the only snack that I have around mm -hmm. that I have at times like – and I don't, if I don't have a knife or something on me, which I usually don't, I'll bite a piece off of the, of the apple, take it out of my mouth, give it to him. And uh, there's actually like Aww. a – well, that's so sweet. But but even uh, like in earlier ages, like the sort of pre-chewing or mild pre-chewing of food, not like a complete baby birding type of situation. Uh -huh. There's the argument that you're passing on vital enzymes to the the young child. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, yeah, I think it, it, it's not that weird that uh, grandma would be passing off a piece of resin to a, a child in, during church. Huh, that's cool. So, you know, grandma chews it in the first half of church, and then when it's time for the sermon to get going, you pass it off to the kids. Yeah, maybe so. Keep them occupied. Uh, okay, picking back up with this quote, though. Although the majority of Vilcuna's ethnographic cases relate to chewing tree resins, reference is also made to the chewing of birch bark tar for similar purposes in 19th century Siberia. The tar had to be prepared in a specific manner and only women could be present. So that's kind of interesting, like this gendered uh, mm. secret ritual about the preparation of the tar for chewing. 
other interesting facts include the uh, the fact that the teeth marks in most of the Stone Age tar lumps appear to have been left by young people, children and adolescents roughly ages 6 to 15. Hmm. And finally, to bring it back to Otzi, the author cites speculation by an author named Spindler in 1994 that, quote, polished sections on the incisors and canines of the frozen remains of the Neolithic body from the Austrian-Italian Alps may have occurred as a result of chewing birch bark tar. And I think this is referring to Otzi himself, to huh. the Iceman. Interesting. But so I, I think this looks like a really good case that going way back into the Stone Age – People were chewing these lumps of tar made from tree bark resin as uh, maybe for medicinal purposes, maybe just recreationally, maybe for aesthetic or hygiene purposes, but they were definitely chewing them. Right. And you could also have multiple, uh, you know, purposes in play. Yeah. Like maybe it starts off as just a way of, you know, heating up the material or having it handy uh, for, uh, uh, you know, use in repairing items and whatnot, but then it just becomes something recreational in nature or – you know, they pick up on the fact that it, uh, you know, makes your teeth uh, appear or feel healthier. Yeah. Uh, but we should say tar produced by tree bark and resin in northern Europe is not the only gum that predates modern industrial chewing gum. There are actually a number of different gum and resin chewing traditions around the world. Right. Uh, one of them is uh, bitumen. Uh, which uh, uh, there's uh, evidence that the Aztecs chewed it. Uh, this is a black, viscous uh, mixture of hydrocarbons uh, that uh, you know is, uh, is often it can be obtained naturally or as or as a residue from petroleum distillation. Uh -huh. We've talked about bitumen on uh, the show before its role, and it's been used basically for a number of different uh, purposes uh, throughout human history from, you know, very industrial uh, type uses to makeup to the preparation of mummies, uh, uh, that sort of thing. I think we talked about how it figured into some hypotheses of the explanation of Greek fire. Yes, I believe it did. Yeah. Well, I think that was on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. It was, yeah. yes. But but that's a great episode because it's essentially an invention episode. So mm -hmm. go listen to that if you want a nice like ancient military secret uh, exploration. Uh, but it, anyway, the, the Aztecs are thought to have obtained uh, the bitumen from uh, natural seepages along the Gulf Coast. And females especially were said to have chewed the bitumen to sweeten their breath. Oh, there's like a, a strange like gendered element again to yeah. chewing gum traditions. I wonder too, this makes me – because I'm also thinking about other um, – South and Mesoamerican um, practices involving chewing, and I'm instantly reminded of the like the lengthy process of creating chocolate, mm -hmm. uh, which is something I would love to just do a whole episode of invention on chocolate one day. But chewing is involved, and I wonder if it like if this plays into like uh, you know the division of uh, of labor between uh, uh, male and female members of society, mm. uh, and like the processing of plants might be something that was done like by perhaps children in some cases and or older people uh, back at the camp while more able-bodied people engaged in like hunting and gathering. Yeah, that's interesting. Let's keep that in mind because actually I think we're about to talk about another uh, Mesoamerican mm -hmm. chewing tradition that has – or at least has been recorded with some social gendered elements. And, and that substance, of course, is chicle, uh, which ah. is totally – that's the basis of chiclets, right? <laughs> I, I guess so. I never it really is, thought yeah. of it. Yeah, chiclets. Yeah, I remember chick chiclets more I remember from, from uh, my childhood. Mm -hmm. uh, but I believe they still make them. I think it's still a thing. But yeah, the, the uh, Aztecs and the Maya were also said to have chewed uh, cured latex or chicle from the tropical uh, sapodilla tree. Yeah, uh, th that tree is also known as the Manilcara zapota. I think that's the scientific name. And it's found primarily in Central America and the Yucatan Peninsula. 
And you can collect the latex from this tree by hacking these Z-shaped cuts in the bark higher up along the trunk. And this allows the latex to trickle down into a receptacle after which it can be boiled to the appropriate viscosity and then prepared for chewing. Uh, now, historical records indicate there are a number of reasons why the chicle was chewed. It was to prevent thirst in some cases, to suppress appetite or hunger in other cases, uh, sometimes to sweeten breath. It's reported that the Aztecs had many complicated social rules about how it could be chewed and by who and when. Uh, there, there were gender-based expectations and taboos. Apparently, chewing chicle in public was okay for single women and for children, but married women and widows could only use it in private as a mm. supposed uh, breath freshener or something, and that uh, that there was an association with it being seen as effeminate or something so that men huh. wouldn't be able to use it in public or would be shamed if they did. Wow. So this is interesting in geographic areas as far as separated in time as like the, the Aztec Empire versus in Stone Age Northern Europe. In Stone Age Northern Europe, it looks to us like the primary chewers of chewing gum then were children. Mm -hmm. And here it's, it seems like it was mainly uh, something that was only publicly acceptable for children and some women. Now, another example of, um, of, of, of a chewing substance uh, from history, the Greeks chewed mastic, which was a, a plant resin obtained from the mastic tree. And it was also known as the Tears of Chios, hmm. um, which is a, its name for the Greek island of Chios from which uh, some, a lot of it was apparently um, harvested. Uh, and it was called that because the way it was harvested, like the, you, would, uh, you would have these droplets coming down from the tree mm-hmm. uh, and um, from the branches and they would kind of um, you know, uh, solidify. And then when you hack them off, they continue to look like little droplets or tears. Oh. But uh, it apparently had a bitter taste and was followed, followed by kind of a pine wood aftertaste that people liked. So it seems to have been used as a, as a way of sprucing up your breath, uh, but also was, uh, had some medicinal properties uh, and, and, uh, and was uh, you know, used medicinally and may have had a value to dental health. I believe there have there actually been some studies that have looked into like, to what degree it actually – it still has you know, a verified uh, uh, impact on uh, dental hygiene. Yeah. Uh, now, there were some chewing traditions also farther north in, the, uh, in North America among the indigenous peoples, some of whom chewed the resin of the spruce trees. The early European colonists to North America picked up on the practice of chewing uh, spruce tree resin as well. And then eventually spruce tree resin was turned into an early version of commercial chewing gum. I think it was in like the 1840s that there was this guy named John Curtis who developed a process for commercially producing spruce tree gum that would involve like boiling down the resin and then cutting it up into strips and coating them in a, in a powder that would keep them from sticking together. And I guess he made some money. Now, obviously, we're not going to have time to, to discuss everything that humans have chewed and continue to chew uh, on the podcast here. But uh, I, I do want to just point out that, uh, you know, a few examples that come to mind in part because of their, uh, their, uh, their stimulating properties. Mm-hmm. So uh, a crayon nut and beetle leaf chewed together. Uh, this goes back to uh, thousands of years in East Asia and the Indian subcontinent. Uh, and still is in uh, – you still see people doing this today. Uh, when chewed, it releases a mild stimulant, much like nicotine, uh, but also it has a carcinogen uh, in it that's bad, you know, ultimately bad for your health. Uh, sometimes additional herbs were also added to it for flavor. Likewise, chewing tobacco, uh, chewing tobacco leaves uh, dates back to pre-Columbian times in North and South America. Again, 
chewing it in order to release a, a, a mild stimulant. And then another, yet another example, the coca leaf, uh, from, hmm. f- of course, from which uh, you know, one can brew it into a tea to create coca tea. Uh, cocaine is also derived uh, from the coca, coca plant. Uh, but uh, chewing it, well, chewing the leaves was a longstanding way of acquiring uh, this, the stimulant properties. And ultimately, uh, chewing has always been a way of of uh, you know dipping into the powers of a particular plant or substance you know mm-hmm. uh, if there's some sort of medicinal property some sort of stimulant property uh, some sort of psychoactive property chewing it is in many cases a way to release it uh, especially if the substance is not something you, you really want to swallow and digest but you do want some of the chemicals inside it well another way of thinking about that is that chewing again is part of our defense mechanism against poisons right, right a way of determining are there toxins here yeah and of course, part of uh, the large part of human history is figuring out which toxins you like, which <laughs> toxins are useful, uh, and in and in what quantities. Uh, and this goes beyond like medicines and drugs, obviously. But you know, like just flavoring peppers and uh, you know all manner of things that we used in our culinary traditions. They're toxins we acquired from the environment and figured out exactly how we wanted to use these evolved chemical weapons uh, for our own culinary purposes. All right, well, I think we need to take one more break, and when we come back, we'll see how Santa Ana figures into this story. (laughs) All right, we're back. And yes, you heard that right, Santa Ana, the Santa Ana. Yeah, it's it's one of these just uh, really, I think, ultimately kind of unexpected and quirky um, collisions in history. Yeah, so the next big page in the story of of chewing gum takes us to meet this unexpected figure, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, the larger-than-life 19th century Mexican military commander, revolutionary, politician, statesman, uh, president of Mexico, who fought for Mexican independence, went on to be president of Mexico, I think multiple terms, uh, and then, of course, later got exiled. In, In 1869, Santa Ana was exiled in the United States and living on Staten Island. And sometime around then, he became interested in the idea of trying to develop chicle, the cured latex from that tree, chicle, he wanted to develop as an industrial substitute for rubber in the production of tires. Mm. And Santa Ana thought that the profits he reaped from the development of a rubber substitute based on chicle would be enough to fund him in a return to power in Mexico. And he somehow became connected to an American inventor named Thomas Adams who lived 1818 to 1905. Adams was based in New York and Adams tried to do this. He, Adams tried to develop a vulcanization process for chicle. Adams was also a photographer, I understand. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, which makes sense, you know, given that time frame, mm-hmm. uh, you know, given what we've discussed in the show about photography and the, the sort of minds that, uh, you know, and creative types and inventive thinkers that it attracted. Yeah, chemistry in the 1860s and 70s, that would be yeah. photography. To, yeah, uh, so I can see that. But, of course, he did not succeed in coming up with the vulcanization process for Chickal. Uh, so when it became clear that there weren't going to be any real profits off of the uh, off of trying to create a rubber substitute out of Chickal, Santa Ana lost interest in the venture. But Adams stuck with it. He, Adams went on to discover that the treated Chickal had interesting properties of its own. So it was not water-soluble, so it wouldn't dissolve in a wet environment like the mouth. And it was very plastic and very stretchy, and by this time, there was already chewing gum 
to find out in the world. Uh, many Americans had become accustomed to chewing gum based on that old spruce tree resin we were talking about. But also manufacturers had largely substituted sweetened paraffin wax and other substances for the original spruce resin. And in 1871, Adams got on this train. He patented a process for preparing chicle for chewing, and he sold it as an alternative to paraffin wax for gum chewers. And originally, I think his recipe was unsweetened gum. Yeah. Uh, but by the 1880s, Adams' chicle-based gums were nat- nationally distributed, and chicle remained one of the most common ingredients in chewing gum until later, I think around the middle of the 20th century, when more synthetic materials uh, became more common. I think the the whole like unsweetened uh, sweetened divide is really interesting because it, it seems here it starts off as being essentially just purely recreational chewing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, yeah, you can make a sense, you know, an argument for you know basic like basic dental hygiene and uh, the freshening of the breath uh, certainly, uh, but it's not it's not you know contain it's not full of tobacco. It doesn't have a stimulant property to it, uh, but then you add the sugar. And in doing so, in adding a sweetener to the gum, uh, you make it a vehicle for this addictive substance uh-huh. that also has plenty of detrimental, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 health uh, uh, impacts. You know, uh-huh. that is going to ultimately uh, lead to uh, the, the ter- deterioration of your teeth, and mm-hmm. it can lead to to other health problems as well. Yeah, when we've been talking about gum for, you know, people using it for dental health purposes, I I would suspect that whatever those purposes, those valid purposes may be, the introduction of sugar probably counteracts all of that right. and does more yeah. damage than good. And then it's ultimately it's, it's as much about the, the sugary sweet rush as it is about anything else. I yeah. mean, even with, uh, you know, sugar-free gums today, uh, you know, I admit that it's that, that, that rush of artificial sweetener. Uh, is sometimes part of the enjoyment of it. Like mm-hmm. you anticipate putting that fresh, untouched piece of gum into your mouth uh, because you're going to get that just fresh burst of flavor. Yeah. Now, Robert, I found an ad for uh, for the, the Adams Chewing Gum Company. It was called their Adams California Fruit Chewing Gum. I think <laughs> this ad was the one featured on the Wikipedia page for the Adams Fruit Company or the Adams Chewing Gum Company. And this uh, this ad is crazy. It looks like something from a much later time because it's got – it's like this goddess in ecstasy putting – it looks like fruit into her mouth. But I guess it's suggesting it's the gum. I'm not quite sure. Interesting. So again, via the, the goddess imagery, there's this kind of um, – uh, you know, feminization of chewing gum. Yeah. Well, I mean, this would have been so. If this was in the late 1800s, this would have been around the time mm-hmm. that we got those at, uh, the, the article in the British Medical Journal and the other publications talking about chewing gum being this like disgusting thing that young women do. You know, it's interesting to to, to think about like dental health concerns because it, it brings me back to our, our episode on toothpaste mm-hmm. and about just like the in, the increasing need for toothpaste or an effective substance like toothpaste to keep up with the uh, the influx of sugars and other um, you know mainly sugars into the human diet yeah. uh, and leading to uh, a lot of dental problems and of course one of the, the problems with having poor dental hygiene is you're going to have poor uh, breath as well you're going to have halitosis and uh, uh, and so perhaps there was an increase I mean it 
one's tempted to think there might have been an, in, an increase in the demand for some sort of breath-freshening product. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when I mean, we see that, uh, that outside of the European context, it seems like there's always been uh, or there, there has long been a need for some sort of breath-freshening product. Yeah. So uh, I'm not sure where exactly to land on that. But uh, w- without a doubt, the influx of sugar into uh, the, uh, the, the diet, uh, the European diet uh, during this time would have led to some bad breath. No doubt about that. And remember, again, um, brushing teeth with toothpaste was not a really widespread common uh, practice uh, until like the 20th century, really. Right, right. So we're we're kind of in the dark ages of uh, like the, the where where the, where the diet had grown worse, but the uh, but the, the dental hygiene practices had not risen up to meet the demand yet. You know, I was just thinking uh, another thing that I suspect very likely to be operant in like that British Medical Journal article and and the other ones talking about the actresses and and young lady students chewing gum is probably. Just the same sort of like uh, sexist trend detection mm-hmm. that causes like adult men to think that girl younger girls are always on their phones, not noticing that boys are just oh, as right. much. And grown men are on, on their phones all the time as well. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. There's probably a word for that, like sex selective trend detection. I'm not hmm. sure what the – it's probably out there. Oh, but hey, we got to talk about Wrigley's. Oh, yeah. Bring it on. Uh, So another big name in the history of chewing gum, of course, is William Wrigley Jr. Uh, Wrigley is just a great last name because it implies that you're some kind of eel like writhing around and somebody can't get a a grip on you. Uh, So Wrigley, of course, began as a salesman. You know, there are a lot of salesmen making it big around this time. In the 1890s, he was trying to establish himself as a a seller of commercial goods. And he ran like BOGO-style promotions where customers, you'd buy one product, you'd get another product, right? So Mm -hmm. maybe you buy – I don't know what they really – you might buy a velocipede and you get a free box of snuff. Okay. Uh, But but apparently one of his very popular promotional giveaways was chewing gum. And Wrigley was so impressed with how popular the chewing gum was as a promotional giveaway that he was like, well, I should just sell chewing gum. So he decided to get into the gum business. Business, launching brands of his own, including brands like Wrigley Spearmint. Uh, and I was reading a History.com article by Elizabeth Nix about some of his marketing practices. I just want to quote this because this is so great. Uh, so this is from Nix's article, quote, Because the chewing gum field had grown crowded with competitors, Wrigley decided he'd make his products stand out by spending heavily on advertising and direct marketing. In 1915, the Wrigley company kicked off a campaign in which it sent free samples of its gum to millions of Americans list- listed in phone books. Another promotion entailed sending sticks of gum to U.S. children on their second birthday. Huh. I hadn't really thought about yeah, how easy it is to mail a piece of gum, but of course it is. I mean, you can stick it in a, in a pack of baseball cards. It's, uh, it'll stick it in an envelope as well. Second birthday? <laughs> Did I read that right? Second birthday? Should kids be chewing gum when they're two? Uh, I mean, probably not. Um, <laughs> I, I don't remember letting my son have, have gum. Uh, I kind of I kind of discourage gum now, and he's seven. Uh, uh-huh. But he but he really he wants it, you know. Like when he sees one of those big gumball machines, of course he wants to get a giant gumball and stick it in his mouth. I mean, I'm no expert on raising children, but something seems wrong there. I don't think two year olds are supposed to have gum, right? <laughs> Fresh from the mail, though. <laughs> 
but still is ingenious, direct marketing. Yeah. You, know, you should have been in the direct marketing of cocaine. That would work <laughs> even better. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to that question. Well, I mean, so after this period, we get more into the, the modern styles of gum. Uh, where, you know, after World War II or so, many natural gum bases like Chickle were largely being replaced with new sim- synthetic rubbers and waxes. And that sort of led us to the the gum world we have today. Of course, we've got, you know, all kinds of other things, artificial sweeteners and all that. Yeah. You get your spicy gums. You get your fruit gums. You get your flavor crystals. You get your gravy-flavored gums. Maybe. I there's mean, a lot of novelty gum out there's there. There's a lot of novelty gum. It sure, it sure is. But then you still have, like, the very traditional juicy fruit-style gum. Like, mm-hmm. it's yeah, – really, we live in a golden age of chewing and bubble gum. <laughs> Now, to come back to something we, we touched on at the very beginning is that you know, is this idea that chewing gum also helps you focus, mm-hmm. you know, not merely, uh, you know, in a pro wrestling ring or, or you know, on, on the sports field, uh, but, but like just, you know, say setting at a desk working, that it can help focus your mind. Yeah, and this has actually been the subject of a lot of research, strangely enough. I wonder how much of it is funded by the chewing gum industry. By the big gum, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, but there there have been tons of studies in, in psychology and uh, – uh, I don't know what other fields this would apply to. I guess it would be in psychology where the question is, does chewing gum make people do better on various kinds of cognitive tasks? Hmm. And there appears to be, at least as far as I was reading, some evidence that there's a little bit of a cognitive boost that people get from chewing gum. But it appears to apply uh, for a few minutes after gum has been chewed, not while you're chewing gum. Or at least that's what uh, I found in, uh, for example, a study from 2011 published in Appetite by Onoper et al. called Cognitive Advantages of Chewing Gum. Now you see them, now you don't. <laughs> uh, and so it was talking about giving people a battery of cognitive tests uh, either while they were chewing gum or after they chewed gum compared with the performance of controls who didn't chew anything at all. And they write, quote, chewing gum was associated with performance advantages on multiple measures when gum was chewed five minutes before but not during cognitive testing. The benefits, however, persisted only for the first 15 to 20 minutes of the testing session and did not extend to all cognitive domains. To explain this pattern of results, it's proposed that the time-limited nature of performance benefits can be attributed to mastication-induced arousal. Hmm. Maybe Fletcher was right. Yeah, well, I mean, it it comes back to the fact that when you're chewing, you're using a whole lot of muscles in your face. You're producing saliva. It's – I could see, yeah, it's Mm -hmm. it's waking you up a little bit. I mean, it comes back to chewing gum in church, right? Yeah. Uh, but then also th- there's probably a conflict the authors think going on when you're trying to chew gum while you're doing a task because you might be benefiting from some arousal, but you're also sort of lightly dividing your attention if you're also chewing. Oh, that's true. And then when you're done chewing, you're you're revved up. Now you're ready to go. Yeah. So you have this mild uh, increase. Uh, so, yeah, it seems to me that there might be a little bit of a cognitive boost from, from chewing gum a little bit after you chew – but it doesn't seem earth-shaking. I wonder why this hasn't, though, led to more uh, – like I'm sure there are some products out there that are marketed as being like a, like a, a performance-enhancing gum. And, <laughs> right. 
I assume I'm sure out it's there. there yeah. yeah, but it's performance enhancing everything. But given how how much marketing is out there regarding uh, you know various uh, you know, uh, you know attention boosting, memory boosting, uh, uh, herbal supplements, and so forth, uh-huh. like why am I not being bombarded with marketing for gums that contain the same thing? Because w- when you look back to our history of chewing things, again, in many cases, we were chewing things in order to uh, get some sort of uh, you know a mild stimulus out of the material we're chewing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look even to uh, nicotine gum today, uh, used as a way of, you know, of, of, of getting people off of, uh, off of cigarettes mm-hmm. and having them consume their nicotine through chewable gum, which you would chew, I think, for like 15 minutes at a time. I think that's the, uh, the idea. Uh, so why, don't we, why haven't we seen more drug delivery through chewing gum during the history of chewing gum? I wonder if it falls back into like the gender divide that seemed to be there. Is that why uh. we didn't have cocaine gums? I wonder. I mean, I when when you talk about the performance enhancing gum concept, I mean, cynical part of me wonders if it's just cheaper to make placebo pills than it is to make placebo gums. Oh, true. Yeah. <laughs> But who knows what the future will, will hold? It is worth pointing out that cannabis gums are already on the market. Which oh, should yeah. Come, it's, it's, it should not come as a surprise to anybody. Uh-huh. Um, and then likewise, there's continued research into things we might be able to do with gum. Uh, for instance, there's some studies looking at using gums containing um, uh, phosphopeptide amorphous calcium phosphate and xylitol as a way of creating gums that are even healthier for our dental hygiene mm-hmm. that uh, that could be uh, you know marketed even more for dental health. Uh, likewise, uh, chewing gum may also impact our wearable technology. Uh, there was a 2015 Time article by Alexandra Sifferlin uh, who discussed Applied Materials and Interfaces journal article in which the researchers treated chewed gum, like pre-chewed gum that one of the researchers had chewed. They, they treated it with ethanol and carbon nanotubes to create a sensor that could, quote, detect body motion and humidity changes, which could be used to track breathing. So, okay. uh, but in this, you know, it's not so much the gum as a thing that's chewed, but as coming back to the material itself, mm-hmm. you know, uh, which is an interesting, interesting to look at this chain, you know, from, from things we chew to uh, glues and rubbers back into chewing gum and then perhaps into metamaterials that will be useful in the future. Interesting, yeah. I had to know this was going to get into carbon nanotube-based chewing gum. <laughs> yes, smart gum of the future. I mean, uh, I, I wonder if there have been any cool sci-fi treatments of that, like some sort of smart chewing gum that you, you chew it up and now it's activated and you can use it for uh, you know all sorts of elaborate uh, things. Well, you know, it, I, I feel like— <laughs> I only chew Vantablack. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does remind me, uh, MacGyver would use uh, bubble gum, right? They would use chewing gum to fix things uh, uh-huh. here and there, you know, and, and in that he's kind of getting— it kind of brings us back to the Iceman and potential uh, applications of, uh, of the material they were chewing. So, uh, you know, it all comes full circle. Well, this episode has certainly provided me with some things to chew over. I hope we <laughs> didn't. I hope we didn't bite off more than we could chew. <laughs> uh, yeah, hopefully not. Hopefully not. But here's one thing that, that's for certain: everybody out there listening to this episode probably has something to share. You know, about either your personal relationship with gum, mm-hmm. what you like, what you don't like. Uh, or other chewable substances. What's your relationship with them? Perhaps you're from a culture that has a has a, you know, a traditional uh, chewed substance. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if that's the case, let us know. I'd love to hear from you. Have you ever uh, Have you ever chewed coca leaves uh, in uh, um, you know in South America? Uh, you know, you know, while on a hike. 
Uh, I would be interested to hear about that. Are you a former uh, tobacco chewer? Do you have any insights about that habit? Uh, maybe you didn't like something we said and you were going to write in to chew us out. Ah, yeah. Uh, at any rate, uh, whatever your feedback might be, uh, we would love to hear from you. Uh, and you can reach out to us. Uh, but uh, before you do, uh, be sure to check out InventionPod.com. That's the mothership. That's where you find all the episodes of this show. And if you want to support Invention, the best things you can do are, of course, make sure you, you have subscribed to it. Uh, make sure you're telling your friends about it. And if you have the ability to leave us a nice uh, you know, assortment of stars or a nice review wherever you got this podcast, well, we urge you to do so because that really helps us out. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Maya Cole. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 